Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, I have one announcement. Most of you have probably received this by email, but in case you didn't, the memorial service for Phyllis Brown will be this Saturday at 1.30 in the afternoon. It will be held at the Waltrip Funeral Home, which is located on Campbell Road uh, between Westview and Long Point. So that's not very far from here on the Campbell Road between Westview and Long Point. And Mike McCauley, who is a long, long-term Longtime friend of uh, Gene and Phyllis's, and pastors a uh, uh, small group up in uh, Missouri, will be uh, officiating. Mike is, uh, some of you may know of a pastor who went to be with the Lord about five years ago in Kansas City by the name of Chet McCauley. And Mike is just is his cousin. So uh, that will be. Good time to celebrate her home going. Okay, before we get started this evening, let's uh, bow our heads and we'll have an opening word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can focus and get our attention off the, all the distractions of the day, the news of the day, the things that we hear about on the way to Bible class that uh, get us out of fellowship. You know, I sometimes I, I just can't listen to the radio on my way to Bible class. I can't uh, look at the news sometimes because you never know what will happen. and just gets you going for the next two hours. So we'll, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can come to gather in freedom to study your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You've given us your word. You've revealed it to us. You have spoken truth that has an unbreakable, infallible, absolute quality that uh, cannot be shaken. It is our source of truth that comes from outside of creation to instruct uh, creatures. Father, we pray that as we study these things tonight, that you'll just help us to think thoughts in ways we haven't thought before, that God the Holy Spirit will make some of these things a little fresh to us as we um, work our way back through the book of Genesis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we actually finished Genesis chapter 50. So if you weren't here, you missed it. We made it all the way through. I started in 2003, so this has been a about four years going through the book. I think I began in May, so it took a little more than four years to uh, get through the book of Genesis, a foundation book for the rest of the Bible, and especially the first 11 chapters are the battlefield of the Bible. And it is the foundation of biblical thought. And it's amazing how few people really take the time to probe into everything that is in the book of Genesis. And, of course, we've taken about 172 hours to do that. So we have uh, probed fairly deeply. Now, one of the things that I had innovated when I started Genesis because of certain frustrations I had as a young man, I want to understand a book, but I don't necessarily have time to listen to 200 hours of tape. And when I was in seminary, I would sit down and say, okay, I've got to take a class on Romans. We're going to cover Romans in 15 weeks, two sessions a week. That's 30 hours. I need to listen to uh, some tapes on that so that I have a good orientation. But wait a minute, that's 450 tapes. I don't think I can do that. So, uh, And if you are a prep school teacher and you're trying to teach uh, Genesis or John, Revelation or some other book of the Bible in uh, prep school, and you're going to cover it in maybe uh, two quarters of about 24 weeks or even a year of 48 weeks, you don't have the time to get out your postal digger and dig down into the depths 
of, of the book and listen to 170 hours of lessons on Genesis to teach, to boil it down to 12 lessons. So what I innovated when I began this series was to label tapes as A-level, B-level, or C-level tapes. And just because not everybody understands this, the A-level tapes were surveys or summaries. So that I started off our study of Genesis with by, by covering the whole book of Genesis in one hour. And then I came back and I looked at the first section, which was the, what's, uh, the introduction of Genesis 1-1 to 2-4. And we covered that in one hour. And then I went through, and those were A-level uh, tape summaries. So they, technically you could go through and go through all of the lessons on the website or uh, in, in our list of, in the list of lessons, and you could come out with about 15 or 20 A-level uh, lessons, and you could get the overview, the survey, the summary of, of the book of Genesis and all the different parts and, and pieces. And then the B-level the B tapes are the detailed exegesis that goes in between the, the surveys. And then C-level was when I veered off on a a doctrinal topic. For example, after we finished going through Genesis 1-1 through 2-4, dealing with what the Bible said about the initial creation week, I then had uh, three or four lessons where I dealt with different aspects of the creation evolution topic and uh, did the same thing various times as we went through the book of Revelation, dealing with dispensations and covenants and history of Israel, salvation and justification, and all kinds of different topics that were touched on but needed a, a uh, more developed treatment other than just focusing on uh, the text itself. And the last time we did that was I did about a four-week ser- sub-series on grief and dying, preparation for dying, in relationship to the death of Jacob. So that set up the structure, and I've been doing that with other studies since then. And now that we are through with our exegesis of Genesis, it's time to go back and review and to go back over what we've done. And as I uh, was thinking about this, I realized it's important to go back at the end because sometimes when you start off, you think a certain way about things, but you haven't studied out. At least as a pastor, I had not gone through every story, every detail of Genesis like I have now. That doesn't mean that I'm changing my views on some things early on, but I've filled out my own understanding of of the text and have a much fuller understanding. I remember when I finished teaching the Gospel of John the first time, I said, well, now I want to go back and start over because I understand the book. So that's that's, uh, what we need to do now is go back and do sort of a flyover one last time of the book of Genesis to try to get this sort of settled down in our thinking. But rather than going back and simply restating things that I have already uh, already stated or just rehashing the same things, I, I'm going to do a little bit of that. But I thought, let's think about this in a little bit different way. Not only do we want to review the key events and the key people and the key doctrines that are uh, developed in Genesis and that have their foundation in Genesis, but I want to think about them in uh, terms of present-day events and present-day challenges. In other words, trying to answer the question a little more uh, completely or maybe from a different perspective of, of, okay, in light of all that's said in Genesis, how does this really impact the way I need to think about the world around me about things that I hear on radio, television, things that I watch on the Discovery Channel, read in the newspaper, things that my kids are being hit with uh, on a day-to-day basis in the schools. How can I develop a little bit of of a strategy based on Genesis to interact with the cosmic system around me that keeps throwing its stuff at me? I started thinking about this a little more about two weeks ago, when I was in Connecticut on August the 5th, as you know from what the report I gave on Sunday, we ordained David Roseland up at Preston City Bible Church. And Preston City operates where they have, instead of a Sunday morning and Sunday night service, they have two services on Sunday morning. They have a 9 o'clock service. I'm just very thankful we don't have a 9 o'clock service anymore. That really helps. 
and a 10.30 or 10.45 service, 9 to 10.15 and 10.45 to, to noon. And so we uh, had uh, Charlie Clough spoke at the first hour, and I spoke at the second hour. And Charlie picked a topic uh, that was good for an ordination top, uh, topic to focus on how the church, how we as church leaders and as pastors need to think in terms of a long-range strategy for training our congregation, because that's the role of a pastor, is to train the congregation to think in terms of the Scripture. Before you can think in terms of Scripture, you have to understand the Scripture. You have to know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. You have to know who Moses is. You have to know the difference between Meher, Shalal, Hashbaz, and Malachi, and all these different people, because when you hit the crux problems in life, what God wants us to do is to be able to think in terms of a reference point and say, okay, I remember reading about David, and David went through a test similar to this, or this is kind of like that test that, that Jacob went through, or this is kind of like that way Esau failed. And, and so we, we know the Bible well enough to where we can integrate it as a frame of reference into our decision-making process, and we can go back in the midst of that real-life test, real-life situation, and apply those principles uh, in, in our own thinking, in our own lives. We live in an era today when we have all been brainwashed in ways that we're not always comfortable with acknowledging in terms of the cosmic system. Uh, very few of us uh, grew up in a time when this country was still dominated by a biblical or Christian worldview. If you were born, especially if you were born after World War II, but I think that if you were born after about 1930, you have had your thinking shaped in a very secular way. If, you're, if you were born between 1930 and 1960, then your thinking was shaped primarily by a secular, humanistic, uh, modernistic, Worldview. You were you were taught from a viewpoint in school. Now, if you grew up in the South, you grew up in small town. A lot of times that that affects things, and you weren't as influenced. Even though they may have talked about God, even though there was a veneer of Christianity that was still there, there was still at the at the core uh, still a lot of secularism that that affected your thinking. If you were born after 1960, 1963 then you you were trained in a much more relativistic kind of thinking. And you are more relativistic in your ethics than you would can possibly imagine. Many of us who are older have been affected that way. We've been impacted that way just because we we get hit on a day to day basis with all of this all of this garbage and all of this kind of thinking and we just can't escape it and it influences us through all kinds of cultural uh, pressure in ways that that we're rarely uh, rarely conscious of often i think of um, what happened in the post world war 2 generation the world war 2 generation has been referred to as the greatest generation and by uh, Brokaw wrote his book on the greatest generation, and that generation had a had a wonderful uh, wonderful experience, in, in, if you can say it that way, in terms of what they did in World War II and rising to the challenge of the threat of both Japanese imperialism and Nazi imperialism. But they failed the prosperity test after World War II, and part of that was that in their generation that in, in my parents' generation that, that fought in World War II, that that generation had, that had already lost the biblical foundation. The liberal theology that was evident in the major popular writers of, of that day, like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was the sort of the, the, the uh, guide-on bearer for Protestant liberalism, was something that w uh, books that could be found just on anybody's bookshelf, and it was uh, he was on the radio, and there was already this vast erosion of, of confidence in biblical truth. And then on top of that, after World War II, the cosmic system just exploded technologically. 
so that my parents' generation had no concept of the peer pressure that pop culture had on on their children who were the, the baby boom generation because they, they grew up in the Depression. They didn't necessarily have access to a lot of the things, and yet when you got into the uh, gen- the post-World War II generation, baby boomers, they had wielded tremendous influence. I remember studies on this I did 20 years ago that, for example, in about 1954, when uh, you remember the Walt Disney came out with the Fess Parker, Davy Crockett series on television, that uh, raccoon pelts went from about you know, 50 cents a piece to $5 a piece just because every little boy had to have a, had, had to have a coonskin cap. And then two or three years later, you had the uh, hula hoop craze. And I forget who it was that produced hula hoops. But they, uh, they just had to ramp up their production. And they, had, uh, they were producing at one time uh, about a million hula hoops a day. And then all of a sudden, it ended just like that. And they were left with warehouses filled with hula hoops and nothing to do with them. But that, but as as baby boomers, we sort of learned that we had real uh, marketing muscle, and and you had all this pressure from pop culture, from the radio, from from uh, American Bandstand, from all the different things that went on that affected uh, that baby boom culture, and so parents of that generation had lost a theological base because of the influence of, the, of, of liberalism in the 20s and 30s, even if they were Christians, there, there's, there's, there was a, an erosion of confidence in the scriptures as an absolute base. And then when they, they became parents and started training their children, they didn't understand the battle that had been lost by the fundamentalists in the 20s and the 30s. And the fundamentalists lost the schools and they lost the churches, they lost the institutions. And were just rolled over by by the liberals. And so a lot of people who weren't very astute doctrinally or theologically were still going to First Presbyterian or First Methodist or, uh, you know, St. John's Episcopal. I don't mean the one here, but just, you know, just using that as a generic term. And they were going to these schools that had, and the, and the theolo- these churches, and the pastors no longer held to a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or a substitutionary atonement or the reality of the virgin birth or the fun, any of the fundamentals of the faith. And so, and they, but they still used the historically orthodox vocabulary. And I remember back in the 1980s going uh, with some friends to a Presbyterian church down the road here on the Beltway and the pastor was as neo-orthodox as he could be. Neo-orthodox is just a biblical catchword for somebody who uses orthodox vocabulary in a non-traditional way. And he would he would talk about on Easter the the value of the resurrection, but what he meant by resurrection was a spiritual thing and not a physical bodily resurrection. But he wouldn't tell people that. So if you listen to him and you didn't know the code words, you might think that they, they really believe the Bible. And I'd sit there for 10 minutes and go, well, this guy didn't believe the Bible at all. But people didn't know that. So you had just this terrible erosion. Well, things have gotten much, much worse today because we've shifted from the uh, modernistic skepticism of secular humanism that dominated up to about the mid-60s. And in the mid-60s, a transition started into what is now known as postmodernism. And I don't know what comes after postmodernism, but we're, we're it, post-postmodernism is on the horizon. And I've been uh, looking at some things recently on this uh, latest development in Christianity now called the emergent uh, church movement. And the reason I bring this up is because most of us, if you're over the age of 30, think where we're going to be 30 years from now. If you're over the age of 30, you're going to be on the verge of retirement on thir- in 30 years. If you're 40, you're going to be probably be retired, be pretty close to it. If you're 50, in another 30 years, you're going to be uh, face-to-face with the Lord or just you know dealing with survival issues for the most part and of uh, our youth culture continues, you're going to be pretty much marginalized. And um, 
But what are we doing to prepare our young people, our children, our teenagers, our 20-somethings to deal with the the ideas that dominate the cosmic system today in, in their thinking? Because it's much, much worse. The pervasive and powerful influence today is nothing like it was in the 50s. If you grew up in the 50s, and we had television, which was a whole new thing. I think parents who had gone up through the Depression, never had anything like that, just didn't realize the incredible influence that TV was going to have. All of a sudden, all their teenagers were seeing what every other teenager in the country was seeing and doing, and they were being influenced by that. Now we we move into a whole. It's like hyperdrive. It's like television on steroids with the with the internet and with uh, cell phones and text messaging and everything related to the information age. And it just goes so fast that by the p- time parents realize what's happening, we're already three stages down the r- road. And as you put the roadblock up, it's like. You're shutting the barn door after the cows are all gone. They're not all gone. They're out of the pasture, and they're way down the road. And yet, as we need to think about this in terms of application, now that's a lot longer introduction than I intended, but that's what I wanted to think about as we go back through Genesis in terms of review, just to not just to rehash the key things that we covered the first time, but also to to focus on a few key uh, doctrines that are there that I might not have developed quite as much uh, the first time. So we see problems today in our world where there's just moral relativism is almost passe. It's just there, there is no morality. There are no absolutes. There is no sense of right and wrong. And I'm talking about most evangelical Christian teenagers. I'm not talking about the non-Christians or the liberal Christians. I'm talking about with the survey after survey shows that the thinking among 12, 13, 14 to 18-year-olds in allegedly fundamentalist churches isn't any different or isn't any less relativistic than that of their neo-pagan next-door neighbor. And that's a failure on the part of churches to, to teach beyond just the superficials of, of basic uh, Bible stories. Then not only do we have this problem of our culture, but then we must face the increasing uh, challenge of radical Islam and terrorism. And because we live in a postmodern world that has rejected absolutes because they've rejected the reality of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there's, there's no creator who created uh, and who's in, in whose mind and his thinking are the ultimate absolutes of, of all reality, that there's absolute righteousness and absolute holiness, and there is a right and there is a wrong, and that right is worth fighting and dying for, and you, and you have to. You can't not fight and die for truth. And this is an interesting thing I've noticed um, in the popular Harry Potter series is a lot of evangelical Christians just make a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, that's demonism or witchcraft because they're wizards. But that's just a fantasy framework, much like uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to communicate some very good biblical uh, principles. And in the overall narrative of the Harry Potter uh, novels, there is a battle between absolute good and absolute evil and main characters die in the battle, and there is a clear, one of the things lessons that are taught is that truth is worth dying for, evil is worth destroying, and you can't allow yourself to be deceived into thinking that somehow everything's just going to work out, so let's not make an issue out of absolute right and absolute wrong. And so I don't think the secular media has quite caught on to the fact that the message in those books is very uh, strongly anti-postmodern. And, but postmodernism affects 
so many day-to-day decisions because if there's no absolute right or absolute wrong, if people don't have the courage in their own souls to take a stand for truth, then what happens when you get pressured is you start waffling because peace and comfort become the uh, absolute standard. This was uh, uh, predicted very clearly by Francis Schaeffer in the late 70s. Some of you know who Francis Schaeffer is. He was a noted Christian uh, apologist and, and evangelist. Really, he just used a lot of philosophy in order to uh, communicate the gospel to a searching generation in the 60s and 70s. And I remember when his series, How Should We Then Live, came out in the uh, late 70s. It was about 78, I think. And they had a great marketing tool, and they put a film series with it that we may show here one day. I just discovered I have the CDs. They were buried somewhere in the house. So, uh, but... I remember going to that. They they came and they they went to five cities in, in the United States. And Dallas was one of them. They went to some other cities where they just showed the films. But Francis Schaeffer and his, his uh, uh, family actually went to and he lectured in addition to the film series to five different places. One of which was at Moody Auditorium in uh, Dallas, Texas, at SM, at SMU. And I remember sitting third row from the front. The first two rows were taken up by the whole Schaeffer clan. You know, they had about five or six kids and all their spouses and all the grandkids and everything. And Tommy Ice and I sat there. We never missed a session. And Charlie Clough was pastor uh Love Bible Church at the time, brought a whole crew from Love Bible Church, and he sat on a row right behind us. And um, Francis Schaefer made the point that when you lose a sense of absolutes, then what becomes the absolute is personal uh, security and prosperity. And you will sell out everything to have a sense of security and to maintain the illusion of prosperity. 1978, just when double-digit inflation was, get, was, was on the horizon. And, and if you remember, at the end of the Carter administration, you had double-digit inflation, you had double-digit mortgage rates, and people were sacrificing values in the family to maintain their lifestyle. They were already saying, okay, it's more important for mom and dad to both work 60 hours a week to maintain our lifestyle than to cut back on our lifestyle, keep the mother at home so that there's there's better child training in the home, and everything began to break down in terms of the uh, third divine institution of the family. Well, we're seeing the same thing happen today in terms of uh, radical Islam because they because of terrorism, people in the West don't have moral courage anymore, and so the, from politicians all the way down, we think well if we just accommodate uh, the Muslims, then everything will be okay, and we're living in a state of absolute denial as to the fact that this is a religious war on their part, it is a holy war on their part. And they want to destroy the West and they want to destroy Christianity, which has been the aim of Islam ever since Muhammad uh, came up with the Quran. And we got a rather uh, sad example of this came across my desk today. And this is published in the uh, Daily Express on Monday, August the 13th. Doctors and health workers have been banned from eating lunch at their desks in case it offends their Muslim colleagues. This is in Britain. Health chiefs believe the sight of food will upset Muslim workers when they are celebrating the religious festival of Ramadan. The lunch trolley is also to be wheeled out of bounds as the 30-day fast begins next month. And then it goes on to say that there are some uh, politicians who think that this is political correctness gone mad, which it is. But this is the kind of thing that's happening today. Again and again and again, you hear of schools that are that are uh, establishing, uh, you know, wash basins so that the two Muslim students that are there have a place to go through their ritual washing. Of course, they don't have a or an airport that will establish a Muslim chapel. Of course, they don't have a chapel for Christians. Uh, all of this kind of thing is going on today. And then somebody sent me this rather amusing little uh, cartoon today. 
I, I don't remember the name of this particular cartoonist who draws this little old lady, but I just love her. And this is very politically incorrect. She says, recently I received a warning about the use of this politically incorrect term, so please note the politically incorrect term is towelheads. We all need to be more sensitive in our choice of words. I've been informed that the Islamic terrorists who hate our guts and want to kill us do not like to be called towelheads, since the item they wear on their heads is not actually a towel, but in fact a small folded sheet. Therefore, from this point forward, please refer to them as little sheet heads. Thank you for your support and compliance on this delicate matter. <clears throat> I just love this little in-your-face humor because we're so afraid to do this now. We live in a culture that doesn't have the moral guts to stand up and do anything anymore. Now, as Christians, we don't want to necessarily become offensive in our offense. But we need to learn how to turn the tables and challenge these things in a way that is uh, that keeps keeps us vocal because it's not happening today. So I want to think through this a little bit as we go through our study uh, review of Genesis. And one of the things that we have to be armed with is just a lot of facts and a lot of information and to uh, think things through and just to be able to ask the right question at the right time in a classroom or in a, and some people just can't do it. I mean, I'm too, I'm just too in your face when I ask questions. I just learned when I was in college I need to keep my mouth shut because I just couldn't reach that right tone that some people have. You know, somebody like Charlie Clough can just ask the question in a way that sort of gets somebody's attention, and I just ask the question in a way like I just slapped him in the face with a cold wash rag and that's just a matter of, uh, you just have to learn how to properly do it. Some of us can, some of us can't. But I, I'm thinking of this through as we go through Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings, and we have to understand that Genesis must be taken uh, literally. And so let's just review a few things that we studied about uh, Genesis. Just think in terms of the structure. Some of this is familiar to you. And we'll go some new places as we think through this. Genesis is really divided into two basic parts. The first part covers the basic four events of Genesis 1 through 11, the early history or primeval history of mankind. The second part of Genesis traces four people, the early events or the primeval events of the nation Israel. So if you just think about four and four, Four events and four people, you can think your way through the book of Genesis. And the early events are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Uh, I, was, I may not get it all covered tonight, but I was thinking we'd just cover the creation and fall tonight, Genesis 1 through 5. But creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Now next week, when we get a little more into the second part of this and into Abraham, I'm going to start uh, using some of the uh, little uh, techniques from uh, uh, walk through the Bible ministry, and we're going to all stand up and have hand motions and everything and learn about 15 events and walk our way through Genesis. And over a period of the next four or five weeks, we'll all have uh, just a little thing we'll memorize that will help uh, crystallize this in our thinking. But tonight we just have the first two, and you can pretty much remember creation and fall. So we're just going to start with those two. And then in the second part of the book, you have four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If you can remember those eight things, you can think your way through the uh, book of Genesis. And I was uh, somewhat uh, uh, encouraged by the fact that last week or two weeks ago, we had the ordination of David Rosen. The first question that Dr. Uh, Elliot Johnson, who's a uh, Bible exposition professor at Dallas Seminary. Elliot's probably about 70 years old now, and he's been teaching uh, hermeneutics at Dallas Seminary since before I started because he was one of my professors. And his first question for David was, would you trace the argument of, of uh, Genesis? Now, David really hadn't gone through Genesis with me, but everybody Preston City Bible Church had. And so they're all sitting there going, okay, you know, we got creation, fall, flood. You know, they probably did a better job than David did. But 
you know, and the, and Elliot heard this, or you know, he, apparently some people around him were mumbling. You know, when I think about who was sitting behind him, it was probably more than mumbling. But uh, they were. Uh, uh, he said afterwards, he said, you know, I I participated in a lot of ordinations, but I've never had the questioning was public like this. He said that was so great. He said the people that were sitting around me were trying to answer the questions we were asking David to see if they knew this. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why you do this, because it forces you to, it gives everybody an opportunity to say, you do, I know this. So we think through uh, Genesis, and we have four events and four people. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and then the four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And if you can do that, you just work your way through the 50 chapters of Genesis. And then once you get uh, those eight pegs up in your mind, then you can start hanging all the details of Genesis from those pegs. And you can, you can think through that. Now, when we got, went through the book, I also said that in the he- Hebrew, it's structured around uh, one word, and the Hebrew word is toledot, which is sometimes translated records. Other times it's translated generations. And you see it, for example, in uh, Genesis uh, 2-4, we have this is the generation of the heavens and the earth. Now, that comes at the beginning of a section, and it's basically saying this is what happens to X. So that you have the introduction of the, of the book, which is creation from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. That's your introduction. And then the next verse says, these are the generations, or this is what happened to the universe that God created in Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. And what happens is sin. And so Genesis 2-4 to Genesis 4-16 describes uh, that outworking through through sin. Then in Genesis 5.1, we learn this is the generations, or this is what happened to Adam. This is what happened to his descendants. And that describes the uh, line that goes through Seth, and that was primarily a godly line or a righteous line. And it ends up, of course, with all the earth being corrupt because of sin, has its tentacles out in the human race, and uh, the whole human race is corrupt, and that brings about God's grace and judgment at the time of Noah. So in Genesis 6-9, you have, this is what happens to Noah. And then in uh, 10-1 to 11-19, you have, this is the, the uh, Toledot, or this is what happens to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And there's a genealogy there that most pastors never teach because they don't understand it, and it's too boring. But it's fascinating. And then you have, this is what happens to Shem. And that ends up with taking you from Shem at the flood to Terah, who is Abram's father. You don't have a, this is the generation of Abraham. Yeah, this is the generation of Terah. This is what happened to Terah's descendants. And his son is Abraham, uh, initially Abram. And you have the calling out of Israel. Then there's a uh, Toledot for Ishmael, which wraps up some loose ends in Isaiah, I mean in Genesis 25:12 to 18. And then this is what happens to Isaac. This is what happens to Esau. So you have to tie up those loose ends. And those, those, the Toledots related to Ishmael and Esau are rather short. And then this is what happens to Jacob. Notice there's not a Toledot for Joseph because the focus is on the three patri- patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and uh, Jeremiah, thir- uh, Jeremiah, Genesis 37, uh, 2 to 50:26 focuses on the descendants of Jacob. I mean, so we get to Genesis chapter one, and what I want to talk about in the 20 minutes I have left is creation and the fall. But we've gone through that a lot. We've gone through it in many different ways. So I don't want to just rehash. What I talked about, I want to talk about a little bit, but I want to make an area of application uh, that's very relevant for our culture today. So we start off and we look at this this um, first section, which is creation. Now, here's how I want to divide this up. We have creation of the fall, which is the first five chapters. I want to hit that tonight. The next time we'll look at the flood and the Tower of Babel. Now, the thing that 
pulls those two events together is they both involve God's judgment on humanity because of sin. We'll talk about the flood and the Tower of Babel and the impact that has on a number of different things. And then the third review session will go over Abraham, the call of Abraham, Abraham's spiritual life, the five different ways in which Abraham uh, is used in the New Testament to, to, in terms of his significance in God's plan for the ages. And th- that'll deal with those five areas plus the basic tests that he went through in his spiritual life. Then the fourth review session will go over Isaac and Jacob. That'll cover chapters 25 through 36, and then we'll wrap up with Joseph. So that way we, we hit everything, and in a period of five weeks we'll come out, and we're all going to know, uh, have a good summary review of what we've done in Genesis. But it's going to be more than simply a rehash. Well, first thing that's important is to understand the stages of creation in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Now, I'm going to re-hit this because there's a lot of questions that I'm continually asked about this. The real issue here is has to do with the age of the earth. Do we have an old earth or a young earth? Is the earth uh, several uh, million years old in the universe uh, three to five billion years old, or do we have a young earth and a young heavens? And how do we document this uh, from the scripture? Now, for centuries, the church has understood that creation occurred approximately four to 5,000 years before Christ, and that the universe is not hundreds of years old. Uh, in contrast, though, and I've got some slides. I'll have to, let me skip ahead, see if I can find them, with a couple of quotes related to human viewpoint thinking in the ancient world. Lucretius, in his work, The Nature of the Universe, wrote, This world has persisted many a long year, having once been set going in the appropriate motions, and from these everything else follows. Sounds like something Darwin said. You know, just get started, and then evolution just takes place from that point on out. Uh, Another writer states that in antiquity there was a broad spectrum of attitudes toward the material world. At one end of the spectrum was pagan cosmic religion constructed from a mixture of Pythagorean, Platonic, Aristotelian, and Stoic doctrines, just a real hodgepodge. This cosmic religion saw the material cosmos, or at least its upper heavenly part, as a perfect expression of divine creativity and providence. The problem is it's an impersonal deity. It's just sort of like fate. Uh, and indeed itself was a divine, uh, divine being. What you have in the ancient world is a, the biblical view that's represented by the Jewish Old Testament, and then all of your pagan concepts, whether you're talking... Uh, uh, Hinduism or Buddhism in the East, or whether you're talking Greek thought or Egyptian thought, but you had just these ongoing cycles that went on forever and ever, and the universe was very old, very ancient. But when you come to the, to the Jews, to the Hebrews, they had a view of a rather uh, young earth. Well, that pretty much dominated uh, Christianity until you get into the early 1800s. But something happened in the late 17th century. You had the rise of what was known as historical geology. And historical geology rejected what the Bible said about Noah's flood and a worldwide flood and the age of the earth and operated on totally independent assumptions that, that man could come to a complete knowledge of the history of the planet, geology, the earth, just on the basis of his own study. And so with the use of uh, fossils and the use of, of uh, 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 thinking about uh, strata and how it was laid down, came up with a principle called uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism is the idea that all processes in the, in the created order in nature are uniform. And decay rates or erosion rates are uh, the way in which... Uh, uh, strata is laid down or that silting is laid down at a riverbed, at a river delta, 
that this process, these rates of of deposits or decay have always occurred at this same rate, even if you go back 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. And so if you can measure the decay rate today, then you just have to extrapolate backward and you can determine how old the earth is, that each of these different decay rates or deposit rates or whatever it is that you're looking at would be like a time clock, and it would give you a pretty accurate measurement of how how old the earth was. And so rather than relying upon revelation from an assumed creator God who told you how old the earth was, they were going to guess from the from the results. And this, of course, was predicted by God, in the uh, New Testament, Second Peter, Peter tells us, know this first of all, Second Peter 3.3, 3, know this first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know, they're mocking. This is sarcasm. You Christian, you say, Jesus is coming back. When's he coming back? Look, it's been 2,000 years. How do you know Jesus is coming back? You, you're just worshiping some old book. You know, let's just live today, and tomorrow we'll die, and that's all there is. And that's what they're saying. Where's the promise of his coming for? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, ever since time immemorial, the earliest of recorded history, everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Uniformitarianism. Everything's the same. Nothing's going to change. There's no crisis. There's no catastrophe. Nothing like this has has ever happened. And Peter's comment, the divine viewpoint uh, interpretation is, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, they're rejecting the initial creation narrative of Genesis 1, the first day, God separates the dry land from the water, and he puts, uh, separates the waters above from the waters below. And so they reject that, and they just are extrapolating their own ideas of origins on the basis of empiricism, rejecting, uh, rejecting any kind of revelation. So they come up, evolutionists came up with an old earth concept. And initially, in, with the original historical geologists, they came up with the idea that the earth was probably forty or 50,000 years old. Well, Christians said it was about four or 5,000 years old, and so they began to think, well, all we got to do is come up with forty or 50,000 years. And there was a view that had been around since the early church that held that there was a time gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and that that's when Satan fell. Well, what happened in the 1830s was a very famous and influential Scotch Presbyterian theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers said, hmm, we can put that 40 or 50,000 years in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And that became known as the gap view. And uh, I've tried to, I modify the terminology. I say that's the old age gap view. And when you read many articles on the ICR website or the Answers in Genesis website, they will argue against the gap view. That's the view they're arguing against. But a lot of people don't understand the history of of, of this view. And um, there was uh, a lot of research has been done on this. And as early as the Targum of Jonathan, which was a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament of approximately 2nd century A.D., 100 years after Christ, there is evidence that that theologians and commentators understood that the fall of Satan occurred between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So I've got a chart here that we'll go back to. Go back to about slide 5. There we go. Stages of creation. Initially, God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1. This is just the, the box that the universe is going to go in. It's just the space-time continuum. I don't have anything in there, no, no, no stars. The reason I don't have any stars there is the stars aren't created until uh, the third day. So you don't have any, or, or the fourth day, you don't have any stars there. 
So you just have the space-time continuum. And I believe that it's somewhere in here God, God also creates the earth. And it's a perfect environment. This was the abode of Lucifer and the angels. And this is when Lucifer fell. This is the only place I can conceivably put this. Well, you will often hear people say, yes, but at the end of every day, God said everything was good. At the end of the seven-day week, he said everything was very good. That means there couldn't have been sin and righteousness, uh, sin and unrighteousness in the universe. It was very good. Now, I have a little problem with that. And the problem is that the word that's used there isn't tzedek for righteousness. It isn't any of the other words that are used for righteousness or integrity. It's the word tov. And tov which is a Hebrew word for, and many times it's used to say, okay, I've got a blueprint here. I just built the house. Let's check it against the blueprint. Okay, the house fits the plan. Okay, that's good. It doesn't have a moral connotation. Because when you get into Genesis chapter 2, God looks at Adam on the sixth day of creation. He hasn't created his wife yet. And God says it's not tov, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, if that word tov in Genesis 1 and 2 has a moral connotation to it, then God would be saying something like, well, it's not really moral, it's not really good, righteous for a man to be alone. So I've got to create a wife for him. So you have a little problem there, and I pose that to various people who hold the other view, and they, they don't have an answer for it. They really don't. They've never thought about it. Nobody ever brings that up, and I read it again and again in literature. So I believe that what happens, this is the Eden Garden of God, Ezekiel 28 talks about, and then there is the fall of Lucifer, and God judges the planet. But this doesn't have to take thousands or tens of thousands or millions or billions of years. It can just take a short time. It didn't take Adam and Eve very long to disobey God. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to how long it took before they, what, what the parameters are that you have to work with? We're told in the scripture that Adam is, is um, about 120 years old when Seth is born. Seth is born after Cain and Abel grow to maturity and Cain kills Abel. So that means that uh, if you want to be fairly conservative and say, well, they were 15, 20, 25 years of age, that no more, probably about 100 years at the maximum. Well, some people have said, well, well, you know, that's just 100 years after the fall. No, it says when Adam, the day he was created, five days later, he was five days old. Just because he was in perfect environment, the fall hadn't occurred yet, doesn't mean he was, he wasn't five, year, five days old. He didn't start eight, he didn't start having chronological age, not physical aging, but chronological age prior to the prior to the uh, I mean after until after the fall. Let me say that again. He didn't start having chronological age after the fall. He still had chronological progression before the fall. He wasn't aging in terms of the process we go through, but he was five days old or a year old or two years old. From the day he was created. You don't start measuring his age from the day he sinned, from the day he was created. So, at the most, you can say that Adam was probably, uh, in, he could have been in the garden 100 years before he sinned. Well, that, that doesn't get you any kind of evolutionary time frame, does it? And if Satan, let's, let, let's give Satan a little more time. Okay, he's got 500 years. That's still not going to get you the billions and billions and billions of years that Sagan the Pagan comes up with or any other evolutionist. And the Bible, if you take it at face value, doesn't give you a sense of millions or billions of years. So you ask the question, well, how would you argue for a young earth? Well, you just add up all the numbers in the genealogies, and, and we'll go through that uh, next next time show that there aren't any gaps. But one reason I spent a little more time on this now than I had intended was because this is a question that comes up again and again and again and again. And I just need to constantly go over this, that you can have this gap where there's a differential between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. And I did the exegesis back when we went through this. And then you have a restoration of the universe 
and a creation of the current planet and the six days that are literal 24-hour consecutive days. Well, you just have to add so many adjectives now. They're, they're literal days. They're not... The, the term day isn't just a figure for a lengthy period of day. It's 24 hours, not... They, they weren't 200-hour days, whether it's evening and there's morning. The terminology within the text is very clear to give you the idea of progression. Uh, there, were, there was evening and there was morning, day one. And... Uh, these are consecutive days. See, there's a view out there today. You'll see a guy by the name of Hugh Ross. Sometimes he's on TBN. You might catch him on a uh, Sunday afternoon or some other day of the week. And he's a scientist out of, out of Southern California. And he takes a view that's called progressive creationism. And this has been modified different people. There's some theologians who take this as not six consecutive days, but these days are literary structures. This is just the, the literary structure. So this is how Moses organized this. So you, now you haven't violated inerrancy. So you still believe the original text is inerrant. Now the issue is what? Interpretation. Interpretation has to do with language and meaning. And that's really what I wanted to spend a lot of time on tonight, but we're running out of time is, and that's why today the battlefield, I want to talk more about this next time, the battlefield is on interpretation. That's why we've had these battles with the Supreme Court and the interpretation of law. It's not what did it originally mean. That's not the question that's asked anymore. Uh, you can't solve the problem by, in terms of biblical interpretation by just doing lexical studies because there's a lot of uh, evangelical theologians today who no longer believe that Genesis 1 is talking about six literal consecutive 24-hour days. They'll allow for millions of years, billions of years. That, that has problems theologically because God makes it very clear to, to, to Adam that the day you eat, you're going to die. Some people say, well, that's your spiritual death. Well, that's the penalty. That's true. Physical death followed from that, and physical death and sin, and, and I mean physical death and suffering uh, followed from spiritual death, but it also affected everything else. It affected the serpent. It affected the woman's womb. It affected the ground, because now there's going to be thorns and thistles, and man's going to earn his living by uh, the sweat of his brow. And Romans 8 says that the earth currently groans, under the suffering of sin and under the curse, and we look forward to the day when redemption is applied to the creation. So sin didn't just affect Adam. It affected everything physically and spiritually in the universe. And so the sin there, while the penalty is spiritual death, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Adam all die, that's talking about physical death. Why do you know that? Because the issue in 1 Corinthians 15 is physical bodily resurrection. And Adam all died and Christ all are made alive. And that's talking about physical bodily resurrection. So if the context there is physical bodily death, then what Genesis is talking about is that death enters into the universe. Physical death enters into the uh, animal kingdom and into humanity as a result of Adam's sin. So therefore, you can't have dinosaurs laid down in fossils before Adam's sins. You can't have uh, fish fossilized. You can't have any, anything die before Adam's, Adam's sin. So you just you know, take your numbers in the genealogies and work, add them all up and go backwards, and you have about a 4,000 to 4,400 B.C. original creation of Genesis 1, and, and that means you have a young earth. And the only reason you think that can't happen is because you've been brainwashed by evolution. And there is a lot of science that disproves evolution. And if you want to do some research on it, I got a discussion today uh, with, a, uh, with a man, um, and he had never heard in any of this stuff before, and he was a solid believer and you know, wanted to believe a young earth, and I kept telling him about go to ICR. I went through a lot of different uh, pieces of evidence to talk about a young earth, and he was just amazed he hadn't heard that. 
that before. Now let me go. I've got some other things here. Since we're talking about this, let's at least complete the thought progress on um, on young Earth. Okay, here's a little chart. I took this out of a book that um, uh, John Morris had on the early Earth. And there's all these different time clocks that people come up with to measure uh, the age of the Earth. You're usually you're familiar with things like carbon-14 dating, which measures the half-life of, of a carbon atom in a uh, rock or something, and then and its decay rate, and then it extrapolates from that to get the um, the age of the Earth. But you can go to other time clocks, other measuring devices, and come up with all kinds of different ages. If you measure the decay of Earth's magnetic field, now Dr. Tom Barnes, who used to be the head of the physics department at University of Texas El Paso, came up with this study, and I heard him lecture on this about 25 years ago. Uh, he couldn't get published in any scientific evolutionary scientific journal because they said, you know, your science is good, but we can't accept your conclusions because they run counter to evolution. Since the days of uh, Lord Kelvin in the mid-19th century, we've measured the strengths of the magnetic sphere, and every year there's a gradual deterioration in the strength of the magnetic sphere around the Earth. So you can extrapolate backwards on the principle, their principle of uniformitarianism. You can extrapolate backwards, and if you go back to 10,000 B.C., the strength of the magnetic sphere would be so powerful that the Earth would that you couldn't have life on Earth. If you go back 20,000 B.C., the Earth would implode. So that pretty much tells you that the Earth can't have been around all that long. So the decay of the Earth's magnetic field suggested uh, that the Earth's about 10,000 years. The influx of radiocarbon to the Earth indicates another date of 10,000 years. But then if you measure meteoric dust from uh, from space, there's too little to measure. So that would indicate that it's only a couple of weeks old. Uh, the influx of sediment that the rivers deposit as they flow into the ocean would indicate uh, 30 million years. Uh, the leaching of chlorine for out of the uh, soil from the continents into the oceans would indicate a date of a million years. But the decay of carbon-14 in Precambrian wood would indicate that the Earth is no more than 4,000 years. The influx of lead to the ocean through the rivers indicates a date of 2,000 years. Influx of aluminum to the ocean through the rivers has well, only been around 100 years. Well, you, you get the idea. You can measure a lot of different processes that are going on today, and they all yield different, radically different ages. There's something wrong with the basic theory of uniformitarianism um, that that operates on the planet. So we've got this challenge between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint on the basic age of the earth, which affects how you view the origin of man. Is man an animal or is man in the image and likeness of God? And how you understand human beings and their basic makeup and purpose is going to change how you look at everything else in life from law to literature from uh, poetry to mathematics to biology to ethics, everything changes. And the issue is really, are you going, as a Christian, are you going to be consistent or not with what the Bible says? But see, if you're postmodern, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Because we all have different views. Nobody can know for sure. So what it matters is that we just have a common experience of Christianity. So let's so there, that leads to two things. It leads to mysticism, either through the extreme of Pentecostalism or through the ritual mysticism. And this is why you have the emergent church today going in the direction of Roman Catholicism. You go to emergent, emergent church churches and they will be going back to Roman ritual. They will be uh, celebrating Lent, and they will be having uh, a ma- celebrating a Mass, and they will start bringing in uh, various Roman Catholic uh, doctrines. Because, and this is why you had the president of the Evangelical 
uh, Theological Society this last April go back to the Roman Church and go to confession and confess that he left the Roman Catholic Church when he was a teenager, want absolution, and go back and become uh, a Roman Catholic again. And you, because people are, they're, they're, they, they basically at their core, here's a guy who is a noted, world-class apologist, evangelical theologian. But see, somewhere at the core of his thinking, he really hasn't understood biblical truth as opposed to human viewpoint. There have been these compromises there. And a lot of that goes back to how you understand uh, Genesis. So that's just kind of the start of our of our review, thinking in terms of the impact of this. Now, what I wanted to take time to do tonight was talk about language, because at the very beginning, God speaks. And all the way through the Bible, it talks about how at creation, God spoke. And when God created Adam, he immediately spoke to Adam, and Adam immediately understood him. He didn't have to say, well, what do you mean by that? So there, there's a lot to unpack from that, especially when it comes to the whole issue of divine revelation, interpretation, and that impacts everything related to the written word. So we'll come back and talk about that next time. So we begin our review, and truly it will only be five sessions. We're not going to go through Genesis again. We've done that. But just going to hit some of these high points to bring out some of the important application. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go back through uh, Genesis. We'll be reminded of some of the important doctrines that we've already studied just to put everything together again in our own thinking that we may have a better uh, synthetic understanding of the book of Genesis. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things and also to think more biblically that we might uh, really flesh out the human viewpoint, uh, neo-paganism that influences us on a day-to-day basis, the relativism that we might think more as you would have us to think consistent as those who live within a a universe that has been created uh, by you and is what you say it is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.